Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Go Help Yourself. It's a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. The voice you're hearing, the morning voice, let's be real, booming through the speakers is Misty Stinnett. And across from me, the silent, stoic, evergreen woman. Evergreen? We're going with it. Is Linky. <laughs> you are a tree. <laughs> On this podcast, we read and review a popular self-help each week, and our goal is that we can give you just enough information so that you have valuable takeaways and can decide, is this book worth my time? Do I want to invest in the cost of the book and the time it takes to read it? Or should I avoid this book at all costs because it's going to F me up. Also, we cuss on this podcast. It's an explicit podcast. So if you've got the kiddos around... We'll give you a second to get it together yeah. and put in headphones. I was so confused as to why you said F and not F. Well, because I, I like to not, I find that I like to not swear until we've warned that it's an explicit podcast and then we can say whatever oh. the fuck we want. I say fuck that. <laughs> it's a little, there's a little E by our podcast for explicit reasons. E by our podcast. So if you're new here, that's what we're doing, everybody. That's what we've been doing. That's what we're going to keep doing. It is, it is a wild, crazy, deep, dark, funny, at times very sad ride. What is happening? <laughs> so I'm going to timestamp this episode and say it is July 18th, 2020. 2020. It's 11 in the morning. And I have, um, because during the coronavirus pandemic, there is no time. And I recently became unemployed. And so I feel like my sleep schedule is all off. So although it's 11 a.m., I woke up recently. And yeah. so this is what's happening. Thanks for being on this journey with me, with us. We're here for it. And also, you might be wondering... Do you release a full book review every single episode? I see that there are two episodes a week and I say, you are smart and brilliant and what an amazing question. And the answer is, we also do a mini-sode. And the mini-sodes are really fun. They're less structured than the book reviews because we are exploring supplemental material, the latest articles about self-help, the latest resources. We have a lot of fun in those episodes with, sometimes we have guests. We had uh, two gentlemen who had their house tidied by Marie Kondo on recently, which was so fun talking about their experience. Yeah. So that is, those are really our shorter, fun episodes. Uh, not, not that we don't have fun here. That makes it sound like no, this Welcome, is a dirt. And you're going to have a terrible time here. And then you're going to have fun on Tuesdays on the weekly beef. So that being said, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Good morning. Good evening. Good night. Whatever time it is that you're listening. And we're going to dive in. Lisa, <laughs> what are you presenting to us today? Let's see. That was truly, truly, truly outrageous. Truly um, outrageous. Truly, truly, truly outrageous. Oh, we did it naturally. As most of you longtime loyal listeners know, often we both go high and I decided to go low. And I'm very pleased with that. Yeah, when we burst into the song, which is often. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're here. You get it. We're all on board. Lisa, what are you bringing us today? Misty, today I am pleased as punch to bring you The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business by Charles, I'm going to say it's Duhigg, D-U-H-I-G-G. -G. Lisa, I have an immediate question. <laughs> How do you say his name? <laughs> no. Why do we do what we do? Hey, great question. I don't know. Are we no, Cylons? <laughs> we are Cylons. Uh... <laughs> This book was published in 2012, which I believe was before Atomic Habits, but Atomic Habits was way, way more successful, I believe, by James Clear. Oh, yeah. Atomic Habits was actually published in October of 2018. So the power of yeah. habit was a full six years before that. So uh, here's what I'll say. Atomic Habits is really more breaking down the habit cycle, the formation of habits. And those of you who would like to go back and listen or would like to listen for the first time, um, we covered it, I believe, last year. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, who can know uh, what time is right now? It could have been what last is week. time. But we both That's loved right. that book. We did, and he was so he spent time on each component of the habit loop, the cue, the the reward, and mm-hmm. the actual activity. Right. So like mm-hmm. the craving, all that. He spent so much time on all of that. This yeah. is a little bit before that, and he spends more time talking about. Um, he spends in the book is in three parts, the habits of individuals, the habits of organizations and the habits of societies, which I found a little bit more fascinating. And I'm glad that I read atomic habits first. Oh, that's so interesting. I've never thought of societies having collective habits. Um, the Kindle is nine 99. The hardcover is 1193. The paperback, (laughs) the paperback is 1209 and the Audible is $28 narrated by Mike Chamber, Chamberlain. And I'm going to tell you about the author. And this is from the book, but I found it so substantial that I didn't go onto Wikipedia. So if he's a horrible person on top of it, I don't know. I'm just going to say that. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Charles Duhigg, that's what I'll say. Duhigg. Duhigg is a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter from the New York Times, where he contributes to the newspaper and the magazine. One of his most popular magazine articles exploring how Target uses data to determine if shoppers are pregnant was exerted from the power of habit. Oh, I remember that. I remember it too. I feel like I I read something where a woman was like, my dad found out I was pregnant or my, my husband or my dad, some prominent male in her life was like, found out I was pregnant because Target shipped a complimentary shipment of diapers to my place. Yes, the dad found out his teenage daughter was pregnant because coupons were advertised directly to his teen. Yeah, oh for prenatal vitamins. My yeah. God. Um, so Mr. Duhigg was, uh, has authored multiple series at the Times and was part of the team that won the 2013 explanatory Pulitzer for the eye economy, which explored the impact of Apple's manufacturing in China and the United States. Mr. Duhigg is a graduate of Harvard Business School and Yale University. So he's stupid and is a so frequent stupid. guest on This American Life, NPR, The News Hour with Jim Lehrer, Frontline and other programs. So he's rolled out. Before becoming a journalist, he worked in private equity and for one terrifying day was a bike messenger in San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) He lives in Brooklyn (laughs) with his wife, a marine biologist, and their two sons, whose habits include waking at 5 a.m., flinging food at dinnertime, and smiling perfectly. The Power of Habit spent more than 60 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and has been translated into more than 40 languages. Learn more about the author at charlesduhigg.com and that will be in show notes. He sounds amazing. And I already like the humor that's peeking through in this. That's so funny. And you'd never, you'd never think that like your bike messenger is going to be this person who then like wins a Pulitzer prize. It was only for one day, especially in San Francisco. Like, Ooh, that's a terrifying terrifying day. (laughs) Um, So there are three parts to this book. I say that I want to focus mostly on the second and third, but as I went back through my notes, there's so much in this book that is fascinating. I immediately encourage you to buy it because it's truly, truly a lovely compliment to Atomic Habits, I feel. So part one is the habits of individuals. Chapter one, the habit loop, how habits work, which I will not spend a lot of time on. Um, but actually I will because the way he approaches it is so different from James Clear. Okay. I, I am loving your enthusiasm. <laughs> I really did like this book. I feel like tackling habits is one of those areas of self-help where it's like, it's at the root of so many things that we do. So it's like, if you can improve your habits by even 5%, a little bitty percentage, you might see a really great effect in other areas of your life. That's right. Chapter two, the craving brain, how to create new habits. And chapter three, the golden rule of habit change, why transformation occurs. Part two is about the habits of successful organizations. Chapter four, Keystone Habits or the Ballad of Paul O'Neill, which okay. is what habits matter most. Chapter five, Starbucks and the Habit of Success, when willpower becomes automatic. Chapter six, the power of a crisis, how leaders create habits through accident and design. Chapter seven, how Target knows what you want before you do when companies predict and manipulate habits. And oh then my God. Three. Wait, real quick. Is it willpower with Starbucks or is it caffeine addiction? (laughs) Well, it's not talking about you. It's talking about their employees. Oh, oh, oh. I was asking for a friend. So 
It's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Part three, the habits of societies. So chapter eight is Saddleback Church and the Montgomery bus boycott, how movements happen. And chapter nine, the neurology of free will. Are we responsible for our habits? Because he's from a journalistic background, like Danby Dan Harris and 10% Happier. Danby Dan. You might remember, or you might really enjoy, as I did, the fact that this book is sourced from like tons of interviews and scientific studies and journals and white papers. And like, you know, it's, it's just so well thoroughly researched and sourced. My landlord has just picked a bone. So he, please don't do that. Thank you. Okay, here we go. Um, <laughs> Lisa's landlord Zoe hangs out in the corner chewing on bones. You get it. We're going to gloss right over that. Let me know if you hear it. So in the prologue, he talks about the habit uh, cure. And he says that one paper published by a Duke University researcher in 2006 found that more than 40% of the actions people performed each day weren't actual decisions, but habits. Oh my God. I know. So you remember whenever people are like, you make over like 2000 decisions a day and it's like, well, actually you don't, you really don't. Oh yeah. They're just habits. Um, and so, yeah, I was saying like so many interviews that he interviewed scientists and executives and research conducted at dozens of companies, but he focuses on habits. This book focuses on habits as they are technically defined, which is the choices that all of us deliberately make at some point and then stop thinking about, but continue doing often every day. Yeah. 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 He gives an example of an army major. And this army major said, prior to entering the military, my best career option had been repairing telephone lines or possibly becoming a methamphetamine entrepreneur. Thank you. Some of my high school peers had chosen to less success. But now he oversees 800 troops, or he did oversee 800 troops in one of the most sophisticated fighting organizations on earth. Right. He says, I'm telling you, if a hick like me can learn this stuff regarding habits, anyone can. I tell my soldiers all the time, there's nothing you can't do if you get the habits right. So what I'm hearing is if we do what this book says, we will all have a battalion. (laughs) Thank you. If you want it, you could. So... Suffice it to say, we know the science behind why habits emerge, how they change, and all of their mechanics. And if you want more detailed stuff with that, definitely go back and listen or buy James Clear's book because that is super, super specific. On Yeah, I feel like that episode, that episode that you did so beautifully, Lisa, just gave us such practical takeaways about how to like habit stack, understand how to break a habit, how they work. It was great. So... I'm going to talk about part one, the habits of individuals through, he does it through these beautiful, every, every part is focused and chapters focusing on an individual or organization. And I just want to talk about the habit loop of how habits work. Chapter one, because he, he, the story is wonderful. We learn about a man named Eugene Pauly who changed science's understanding of habits. Okay. He, this man fell very ill to viral encephalitis. And this virus destroyed a five centimeter oval of tissue close to where his cranium and his spinal column met. And it destroyed almost all of his medial temporal lobe. And that's a sliver of cells, which scientists suspected was responsible for all sorts of cognitive tasks, like recall of the past and regulation of some emotions. So he recovered, but he was not the same man. So his recovery was quicker than anyone imagined. He was performing physical tasks wonderfully, but it was obvious that his memory was affected. Couldn't remember what day of the week it was. And he could not remember his doctor and nurse's names, no matter how many times they introduced themselves. He couldn't remember how old he was. He guessed like 59 or 16. He was 71. Oh, that's Um, fun. His wife noticed that like he would get up, he would make breakfast and then he would get back in bed. And then 40 minutes later, he would get up, he would make breakfast, and then he would get back in bed again. And then later he would get up and make breakfast and do it That's, again. So, because it's not, so it's not connected to a need that you're feeling in that moment, it sounds like, because he's already made breakfast, he's already eaten. That's right. Okay. So eventually they reached out and he met with a professor who was an expert in the neuroanatomy of, of memory. His name was Larry Squire. And when he looked at the images of Eugene's brain, he found that they were very similar to a very famous patient known as HM. So HM had horrible seizures. This was a long time ago, but um, he had brain surgery to heal the seizures and they did, but it rendered him unable to remember anything for more than 20 seconds. 
So oh his my whole God. life. Yeah. So there were these empty walnut sized chunks in the middle of both their heads. Wait, is HM Drew Barrymore from 51st Dates? No, but you remember in that movie, there was a guy they called 22nd Larry. Yeah. Five Second Fred. Oh, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he says Eugene's memory, just like HM's, had been removed, but they were very different. HM had to be institutionalized for the rest of his life, and Eugene could carry on conversations. At the time, no one wondered how a man who couldn't draw a map of his own home was able to find the bathroom without hesitation. So they'd say, Eugene, can you draw a map of your home? And he'd say, I don't think I can. And they'd Mm -hmm. say, can you go get a, can you go get some um, nuts out of the kitchen? And he would. So he knew where everything was, but he couldn't necessarily conceptualize in this other way. That's right. That's right. So that question and others like it would eventually lead to a trail of discoveries that has transformed our understanding of habits power right? He could walk, take a walk around the block, but he couldn't tell you where his home was located. Mm-hmm. So Squire wondered, like, how are these new patterns forming inside of Eugene's damaged brain? So um, MIT researchers started working on habits in 1990s, about the same time Eugene came down with his fever. And they were curious about this little nub of neurological tissue known as the basal ganglia. All right. Mm-hmm. So if you think of the human brain, like an onion layer upon layer of cells, the outside layers, the closest to our scalp and our cra- our skull, mm-hmm. are generally like the most recent additions from an evolutionary perspective. Oh, interesting. So like, like a tree. Yeah. The outer layer, the outer rings. Yeah. So like um, when you think of a new idea or laugh at a friend's joke, it's the outside parts of your brain at work. Mm. Where the brain meets the spinal column are older, more primitive structures. So they control our automatic behaviors, breathing, swallowing, or the startle response, right? Oh, wow. And towards the center of the skull is a golf ball sized lump of tissue, similar to what you might find inside the head of a fish, a reptile, or a mammal. And this is the basal ganglia. It's an oval of cells that for years they didn't under, scientists didn't understand, except for the suspicions that it played a role in diseases such as Parkinson's. So the basal ganglia was central to recalling patterns and acting on them. In oh other words, God. this stored habits even while the rest of the brain went to sleep. And habits, scientists say, emerge because the brain is constantly looking for ways to save effort. Mm-hmm. I always say the brain is lazy. And my therapist mm-hmm. says, no, it's reticent to exert effort. It's like right? efficient to a problematic <laughs> yes. degree. So left to its own devices, the brain will try to make almost any routine into a habit because habits allow our minds to ramp down more often. And this oh. effort-saving instinct is a huge advantage. I never thought about this. An efficient brain requires less room which makes for a smaller head, which makes childbirth easier and therefore causes few infant and mother death. So evolutionarily speaking, oh my an efficient God. brain is, is makes sense. It makes sense why that evolved. Right. Right. Yes. It also allows us to stop thinking constantly about basic behaviors like walking and choosing what to eat. So we can devote mental energy to inventing tools like spears and irrigation systems and airplanes and video games. Right. Yes. So evolutionary speaking, habits are really important for us and they come from this basal ganglia. And mm. just to re, re, uh, acquaint everybody with, um, habits or to introduce you first, there's a cue. It's a trigger that tells your brain to go into automatic mode and which habit to use. Then there's the routine, which can be physical or mental or emotional. And finally, there's a reward, which helps your brain figure out if this particular loop is worth remembering for the future. And I love the example you used from mm-hmm. it's, it's stuck with me so much. It can happen in an instant. So for example, you walk into a room that's dark, you flip on a light switch and you're no longer in the dark. So the cue is, Oh, I'm in a dark room. The routine is I flip the light switch on. The reward is now I'm, I can see where I'm going. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it happens. It's happened so fast. It's that fast. So. When a habit emerges, the brain stops fully participating in decision-making, like your example you just gave. You don't think about turning on the light. No. You often turn on the light without thinking about it, unless you realize, God, it's dark. I should turn on the light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But most often than not, at night, when you walk into a room, you flip on a light. Right. So the brain gets to stop working so hard to divert focus to other tasks. And habits never disappear. They're encoded into the structures of our brain. And that's a huge advantage for us because it would be awful if we had to relearn how to drive after every vacation. I was just, I was just thinking that because like driving, I remember felt like such draining con concentration when I was 16 and trying to learn. And then, and now it's like you just hop in the car and it really is like walking. 
It's true. And also without habit loops, our brain would just shut down overwhelmed by the minutia of daily life. So people terrifying. who <laughs> are damaged by injury or disease often become mentally paralyzed because they can't form habits. It's loops. too much. So, wow. Just, just as a, as a recap, habits are powerful, but delicate. They can yeah. emerge outside our consciousness or they can be deliberately designed. They often mm-hmm. occur without our permission, but can be reshaped by fiddling with their parts. They shape our lives far more than we realize, he says. They are so strong, in fact, they can cause our brains to cling to them at the exclusion of all else, including common sense. Holy moly. So how to create new habits. He talks about that. What I love is that he doesn't just talk about the habit and like you creating a habit. So Misty, whom do you have to thank for your toothbrushing habit? Uh, I guess that would be my parents. You're wrong. It's advertiser Claude Hopkins. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Claude. Excuse me. (laughs) So get this. In the early 1900s, he was approached to invest in Pepsodent. So nobody really brushed their teeth at that time. Um, Door-to-door salesmen hawked like powders and elixirs for dental health, and nobody was really making money. And people had started eating more processed sugary foods, and so dental hygiene was going down. Oh, God. That's a really scary place in history to be. (laughs) Right. <laughs> Within five years of that partnership, Hopkins turned Pepsodent into one of the best known products on earth and in the process helped create a toothbrushing habit and moved across America with startling speed. Holy so cow. he was an advertising executive. He'd worked with like Goodyear and like Coors uh, or Pabst, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but even today, his rules influence everything from how we buy cleaning supplies to the tools governments use for eradicating disease. So Whoa. they're fundamental to creating any new routine. And he helped establish toothbrushing as a daily activity. Wow. So the secret to his success, he would boast, is that he found a certain kind of cue and reward that fueled a habit. And it's this alchemy so powerful that these basic principles are still used by video game designers and food companies and hospitals and millions of salesmen oh around God, the world. Tell me. Well, I, there's so many people Eugene, I want to manipulate. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, Eugene <laughs> Hawley also taught us about the habit loop. But it was Claude Hopkins showed us how new habits can be cultivated and grown. So Charles Duhigg asks us, what exactly did Hopkins do? He created a craving. And that craving, it turns out, is what makes cues and rewards work. That craving is what powers the habit loop. Right. So he says, first, find a simple and obvious cue. Second, clearly define the rewards. But it turns out that those two rules aren't enough. There's a third rule that must be satisfied. It's a rule so subtle, Hopkins relied on it without knowing it existed. Oh. He'll explain later. But then he talks about Febreze. And Febreze almost didn't exist because they could not figure out how to sell it. It was not selling. They first marketed it as um, an odor destroyer, right? Mm-hmm. They, I remember that nobody would buy it. everywhere. Yes. But then they found out it was the people who lived with smells that needed to be taken care of were used to them or didn't notice them. So if you're a smoker, you didn't notice the smoke. Right, right. You become desensitized. Yes. So how, so the Febreze at Procter & Gamble, they were like, how do you build a new habit when there's no cue to trigger the use? So then they talked about study on monkeys. I struggle with this part because they put electrodes in their brain. But basically, this is where they learned about the neurological craving that's the part of the habit loop, Mm -hmm. right? So it's cue, routine, reward, and the craving drives the loop. Once a habit is formed, you are less likely to be distracted from completing the habit. And this explains why habits are so powerful. They create neurological cravings. So basically, once monkeys learned a habit, they got a drop of blackberry juice, But it it was the anticipation of the reward that made them crave it. It wasn't necessarily the reward itself, which we also know because Mm -hmm. like gamblers and um, addicts, their high comes from the anticipation, not necessarily the actual use. Which is so interesting. And also it just makes me feel like I'm thinking of like every cologne commercial I've ever seen, which is like the anticipation Mm -hmm. of like, you're going to put on this smell juice. And the opposite sex is going to be like, or the same sex or whatever sex you identify with is going to be like, wow. That's right. (laughs) So nice to be close to you. So here's how companies use this. So like Cinnabon, most, most food courts in a mall is where everybody puts all the food sellers put their stalls. But like Cinnabon always locates away from there because 
They want the smell of cinnamon rolls to waft down the hallways and around the corners so that you start subconsciously craving it. Can I tell you that it works every time? Yes, it fucking does. The last time I went to a Cinnabon, which was a couple of years ago, because they're not everywhere, I got some sort of like, it was like a Frappuccino, but Cinnabon's version, but they took Mm -hmm. the straw and put three mini Cinnabons on the straw. (laughs) Yes. This is America. Buy it. (laughs) Buy everyone. That's how they fixed selling Febreze. It, while it was created to destroy odors, they realized nobody craves scent free. They do create, they do crave a nice smell after they're done cleaning. So they started marketing it as an air freshener in 1998 and it now accounts for one billion in sale, that's billion with a B in sales per year for Procter and Gamble and has started many spinoff lines. Eventually they told consumers it also eliminated odors. So they just kind of slipped it in. Oh, so Febreze was first marketed as like, it's an odor destroyer. Odors just won't exist in your home. And it was unscented. Nobody used it. Here's the thing, Misty. It also worked for Pepsodent. So toothpaste can taste like anything you want, but they created a craving for the cool tingly sensation in their mouth after brushing. Otherwise, it didn't feel clean. I want a nice beef gravy. (laughs) I didn't know we could choose. That's what I want. Well, I mean, kids' toothpaste tastes like strawberry or raspberry or blueberry. Yeah, but it never occurred to me that I could have like a chicken pot pie situation every morning. Yeah, but nobody wants that because what we've come to understand is the feeling of clean teeth. We've come to associate the craving of a cool, tingly sensation, right? Right. So he wasn't selling beautiful teeth. He was selling a sensation. But this is exactly why fewer than 10% of Americans apply SPF every day because there's no craving behind it. Cravings are what drive habits and figuring out how to spark a craving makes creating a new habit easier. Oh my God. So what you're saying is like, if we made a sunscreen that immediately made us feel relaxed or really moisturized or like some kind of like cool sensation, we would probably be putting on sunscreen way more. Yeah. Because I I think sunscreen is a fear-based situation where we're like, if you don't want... yes. Skin cancer or skin conditions or wrinkles or whatever, you know, 10 years from now, put this on, but it's so disconnected. So chapter three is the golden rule of habit change, why transformation occurs. And he talks about Tony Dungy. I think I'm saying that right. Or Dungy, Dungy, the NFL coach who took a very long time to get a head coaching position, even though he bounced around from team to team. And finally, when he got one, he took over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They were losing over and over. They were like the losingest team. And part of the problem that it took him so long to get hired as a head coach because of his coaching philosophy and all of his job interviews, he would just patiently explain that his belief to his belief that the key to winning was changing players' habits. He wanted to get players to stop making so, so many decisions during a game. He wanted them to react automatically, habitually. And he said, if he could instill the right habits, his team would win, period. And of course, people were like, thank you so much. We're never talking to you again. So right. finally, mm-hmm. he got the Tampa Bay Bucks. And he focused on habits and he took them to one of the league's winningest teams. So he recognized you can never extinguish bad habits. You can never truly extinguish them. Rather, to change a habit, you must keep the old cue, deliver the old reward, but insert a new routine. Oh, interesting. Well, that, that also makes me think how important it is to employ deliberate practice when you're first forming a habit, because if they then become very hard to update or replace or nearly impossible, you want to really pay attention to how you're doing it the first time. Yeah. Wow. So this chapter is fascinating because it talks about how he, you know, and they resisted it. They they wanted to be able to make these choices on field. And he's like, no, you need to recognize the pattern that they're running, recognize the play that the other team is running, like for, for his defense team and immediately do this. When you see this, what do you do? When you see this, what do you do? When you see this, what do you do? So they started to be able to make decisions and not make decisions basically, but execute habits faster. Automatic behavior. Right. That's right. That must have so, been really frustrating for the owner of the Tampa Bay Bucks for the first few games. As there, but they were also a terrible team. So <laughs> where did they have to go? But uh, um, then he also links this to AA. So any behavior can be transformed if the cue and the reward stay the same. 
So an estimated 2.1 million people seek help from AA each year. And that may have been up because this was in 2012. And as many as 10 million alcoholics may have achieved sobriety through the group. But what AA provides is a method for attacking the habits that surround alcohol use. AA, in essence, is a giant machine for changing habit loops. When the cue comes of feeling either out of control or lonely or upset or triggered or whatever, mm-hmm. the habit typically, right? Like the, the action was to take a drink, but now it's to reach out to your sponsor, go to a meeting, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And the reward is to dissipate whatever anxiety or feeling or feel connected or et cetera. Does that make sense? Right. So the cue's the same. I want to drink. Mm-hmm. The reward's the, the same. Reward's the I'm same. feeling less anxiety, but you change the behavior in the middle. Wow. That's right. So, and there's also a lot of talk in this chapter about how belief is a required ingredient for some habits. Cause like AA uses, use, um, its use of God really supplies that in newly sober individuals when they don't feel capable. Right. And the precise, the author says precise mechanisms of belief are, are still very little understood. That's a terrible way of saying that. They don't understand how belief works in habits. Okay. But we do know that for habits to permanently change, people must believe that it's feasible. So. And I think, I think James Clear talks about you need an identity shift if you really want a habit to stick. Not I run every morning, but I am a runner, right? Mm-hmm. It's a subtle that, difference. That's, but, that's a beautiful tie in, Misty. Yeah. Maybe that's part of the belief too. Yeah. Yeah. He was just talking about, you know, when it becomes part of you and part of your identity, mm-hmm. you have a lot more motivation mm-hmm. or a deeper understanding of why you're doing this thing. It is who That's I am, not it's something I do. Okay. So we're into part two, the habits of successful organizations. Chapter four, Keystone Habits, the ballad of Paul O'Neill and which habits matter most. So this chapter is all about Paul O'Neill and his work as CEO of Alcoa. Now Alcoa makes aluminum and it makes all kinds of aluminum from like the foil on the outside of Hershey's Kisses to cans and, and other kinds. Wow. So he took over when the company started lagging in profits and his first speech to stakeholders was all about worker safety. And everybody was like, who is this guy? And what the fuck is he talking about? Right. Why is worker safety going to be a thing? But he had a belief that keystone habits, which they often talk about, which are habits that matter more than others and influence many other areas in our lives mm. uh, and business, that they were important. He started on worker safety and it transformed the company into a, quote, profit machine and bastion of safety. How? Well, here we go. So... um So keystone habits, researchers believe, like exercise, spill over into other areas of our lives. So in order to protect workers, Alcoa needed to become the best, most streamlined aluminum company on on Earth. And O'Neill's safety plan, the author says, in effect, was modeled on a habit loop. He identified a simple cue, an employee injury. He instituted an automatic routine. Anytime somebody was injured, the unit president had to report it to O'Neill within 24 hours and present a plan for making sure the injury never happened again. And then there was a reward. The only people who got promoted were those who embraced the system. Mm. So he was really shifting culture by these habits. So as the safety pattern shifted, other aspects of the company started changing with startling speed as well. Policies managers had resisted for a long time, like giving workers autonomy to shut down a production line when the pace got overwhelming, they were now welcomed because that was the best way to stop injuries before they occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, the company shifted so much that some employees found safety habits spilling over to other parts of their lives. There's a story about one executive was in his office building, I think in New York, and he looked out the window and saw construction workers on a bridge without the proper safety equipment. And he ran down, went over and said to them, you can't work without this equipment and like called... Uh, 311 it was like you they're not su- supported <laughs> oh my god that's yeah. so funny um so o'neill never promised that his focus on worker safety would increase the profits but costs came down quality went up pro- productivity skyrocketed because of these keystone habits right because you've got happier healthier employees and a management team that's more communicative right and- Okay. Right. So studies have documented that families who habitually eat together seem to raise children with better homework skills, higher grades, et cetera, et cetera. So, mm. you know, um, and making your bed every morning is correlated with better productivity, et cetera, et cetera. So like, which by the way, we also covered a book <laughs> called make your bed. If you want to listen to that episode by, uh, what did we call him? Admiral daddy. 
<laughs> Admiral Daddy. Um, he also talks a little bit here about Michael Phelps, who you might know is the never most winningest gold no, medal athlete for the United States of all time. He might be of all time anywhere, but he and his coach created non non swimming habits that got him into a mental mindset where he couldn't be beaten because he's like he's already built perfectly for swimming. Right, his wingspan's like longer than his body or something. That's right. So like. He designed a series of behaviors that Phelps could use to become very calm and focused before each race to find those tiny advantages. So, you know, that's swimming is milliseconds victory, right? He's in a habit loop on race day that starts that morning from when he wakes up to what he eats to when he does his like when he gets in his suit to what his warm up laps are like he's in the habit loop every, every day. So the time that he did win when his glasses or his goggles leaked, mm. like it was not a big deal. It was one tiny thing. Right. But, but everything was else was on his track. Loop. They also talk about um, small wins. Like Alcoa started with these small wins and the small wins lead to bigger wins. So when gay rights organizations started campaigning against homophobia in the late sixties, their initial efforts yielded only a string of failures. But then in the early seventies, the American library association's task force on gay liberation thank you, librarians, decided to focus on one modest goal. They wanted to convince the Library of Congress to reclassify books about the gay liberation movement from one um, category to another. The original category was abnormal sexual relations, including sexual crimes, and they wanted to move it to a less pejorative category. Thank you. So in 1972, after receiving a letter, the Library of Congress agreed to make the shift, reclassifying them to a newly created category, which was titled Homosexuality, Lesbianism, Gay Liberation Movement, Homophile Movement. It was a minor tweak of an old institutional habit, but the effect was electrifying. So news spread and this this small win helped move it forward. Does that make sense? I would say that's a really big win. A really big win. But I I see that it's literally, it's it's just language, right? It's language, but language matters. Yes, exactly. So here's the thing, how this worked for for Paul O'Neill. Six months after he became CEO, he got a call in the middle of the night and a worker had died. He called all the managers into an emergency meeting, made them review the accident footage over and over and over, which was not pleasant until they understood all the reasons why it happened and made immediate adjustments. This newfound vigilance resulted in a short-term noticeable decline in the injury rate. So they got a small win and then he pounced. He sent out a memo. It said, I want to congratulate everyone for bringing down the number of accidents, even for just two weeks. We shouldn't celebrate because we've followed the rules or brought down a number. We should celebrate because we are saving lives. Workers made copies of this. They taped it to their lockers. And but he makes a note about how Paul O'Neill has been just driven to discover stuff. He worked for the government beforehand to figure out why there was a high infant mortality rate in rural areas. And he like really drives down. He, and that's interesting. I'm not going to go into it here, but it, it was fascinating. Anyway. It is fascinating. There was a- well, and also like when people feel safe and valued, like that culture shift, when people feel safe and valued, they do better work. They're more excited. They want to focus more. Yes. Like it really, it does this cascade. Of yeah. So sometimes cultures manifest themselves in vocabularies, which becomes itself like a habit, like core programs, safety philosophies, stuff mm-hmm. like that you hear mm-hmm. in, in your organization. But here's what happened then. There was a minor event, some fumes at an alcohol plant in Mexico made workers sick, but the, sick, but the executive in charge fixed the problem, but didn't report it. When O'Neill heard about it from a nun, nonetheless, like what? he was complaining about it, <laughs> he investigated and the executive was fired two days later. Mm-hmm. And everybody was like, well, of course he has to be fired. That's the culture. Like, yeah, people were like, the guy basically fired himself. Like it was that accepted. But here's yeah. the thing. O'Neill doesn't even work there anymore. But even in his absence, the injury rate continues to decline. In 2010, 82% of Alcoa locations didn't lose one employee day due to injury. On average, workers are more likely to get injured at a software company, animating cartoons for movie studios, or doing taxes and as an accountant than holding than handling molten aluminum at Alcoa. That's amazing. Isn't that fascinating? That's fascinating. I know. I really, really love it. Um, wow. There's the chapter about Starbucks basically talks about how Starbucks used what they learned to help employees not snap. With it's about willpower and habits and how you need to <laughs> insert plans at inflection points, right? Okay. And that 
you can't, it's, it's fascinating. It's about willpower. I love it. Listen, then, I'm, I'm giggling because I worked at Starbucks in college for a brief period. I think for like four months, something like that at one of the bookstores, Starbucks, yeah. Starbuses on campus. And, uh, I'd love to read that chapter about how not to snap. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, I mean, they learned that like they need the kind of training that they were offering when during their huge expansion was mm-hmm. not what they needed because Every employee, every employee does fine, but you can't predict what's going to make somebody snap. Right. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure. Willpower is like a muscle. And when it gets weak by the end of the day, mm-hmm. you know, you can't, you can't predict what kind of a day they're going to have. So they basically got them to plan out habits of what would happen at these inflection points. Wow. It's really cool. fascinating. Yeah. Um, chapter six is about the power of crisis, how leaders create habits through accident and design. Mm. It's about how. The, Lo- the London Underground had this terrible fire in 1987, and it was because they had created this flat hierarchy where a flat structure where nobody was in charge. It's also about how, like, in Rhode Island, there was this hospital where there were accidents happening because the doctors and nurses had such a power struggle. Uh, um, there was nobody to definitively say this well, is the, the doctors take. In the London, yes, they, they created purposely to not, to not have anybody be in charge of one another. But then when there was this raging fire, it came clear that no one had power to actually solve the problem Mm -hmm. as opposed to like this Rhode Island hospital where one of the problems was that they operated on the wrong side of someone's brain because the doctors and nurses were couldn't, you know, the doctors didn't listen to the nurses and the nurses oh, didn't have the power to, yep. God. or they, they opened up to realize that it was the wrong side. Also like, you know, NASA administrators tried for years to improve the agency safety habits, but those were unsuccessful until challenger. So like good mm. leaders seize on crises to make remake organizational habits. Yeah. 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 Um, and then chapter seven is about how target knows what you want before you do. It's fascinating about metadata oh. and how companies use it to advertise to you specifically. It's terrifying and interesting um, <laughs> about how we just function out of habit. Oh. Um, and then now we're into part three, the habits of soci- societies. Chapter eight, Saddleback Church and the Montgomery bus boycott, how movements happen. This is the one I'm going to spend the most time on chapter nine. Not, not a lot. Okay. So we all know the story of Rosa Parks. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't, if you're from outside of uh, America, she was a uh, woman who was an organizer, but one day decided not to move to the back of the bus in segregated, the segregated bus system of Montgomery, Alabama. And, um, this was a, the small refusal was the first in a series of actions that shifted the battle over race relations from a struggle fought by activists and courts and legislatures into a contest that would draw its strength from these, from entire communities and mass protests. Mm. The author continues by saying over the next year, Montgomery's black population would rise up and boycott the city's buses, ending their strike only once the law segregating race on uh, races on public transportation was stricken from the books. Mm. So Rosa Parks and Montgomery bus boycott became the epicenter of a civil rights campaign, not only because of the individual act of defiance, but also because of social patterns. Okay. So this is, this is the big thing here is that social habits are what fill the streets with protesters who may not know one another, who might be marching for different reasons, but who are all moving in the same direction. Social habits are why some initiatives become world changing movements while others fail to ignite. And this fascinated me in the time that we are in Misty. Yes, because as of the time of this recording, there are many in in America, there are many Black Lives Matter protests going on nationwide. Yeah. There are a lot of campaigns to defund the police against police brutality. And, you know, this is this has been sparked by the most recent uh murder of a black man by police. His name's George Floyd. Yeah. I mean, you know. Just in case anyone needs a refresher, if you're listening to this a year from now, this is the current context we're in. So here's what the author says. The reason why social habits have such influence is because at the root of many movements, whether they're large scale revolutions or simple fluctuations in the churches people attend, is a three part process that historians and sociologists say shows up again and again. A movement starts because of the social habits of friendship and the strong ties that's firsthand relationships Mm -hmm. between close acquaintances. 
strong ties. It grows because of the habits of a community and the weak ties. Those are links that connect people who have acquaintances in common. Mm -hmm. And that holds the neighborhoods and clans together. And it endures because a movement's leaders give participants new habits that create a fresh sense of identity and feeling of ownership. Mm. So it's strong ties, weak ties, and new habits that give you identity. Tell me if I've got this right. So we hear about yet another horrific murder of a black Mm -hmm. man and people in our lives, we see them becoming enraged and growing active and they're being vocal. So that's strong ties. And then maybe on social media, we see a ton of other friends also being active and becoming enraged and speaking out. And so that is what helps us also form this being active and politically involved and consuming of the news cycle. Is that right? I think so. That's what I posit, but I don't know because I don't know about the impact of social media in this. Well, I just meant like as an example of, of weak ties. Yes. Right. Yes. That's what I think. So because Parks was not the first person arrested for doing this. Right. But she was deeply respected and embedded within her community. So Mm. when she was arrested, it triggered a series of social habits, the habits of friendship that ignited this initial protest. Right. Wow. The first mass movement of the civil rights, modern civil rights era could have been sparked by any number of the earlier arrests. Right. But it began with her because she had a large, diverse and connected set of friends who, when she was arrested, reacted as friends naturally respond by following the social habits of friendship and agreeing to show their support. Well, that's what I keep wondering about with now, because, you know, we have seen person of color after person of color murdered by police in America. Yes. And we have seen some protests and some activism, but George Floyd's death really was the one that also had Amy Cooper, which was, I think on the same day that the woman in New York central park who, who who pretended she was being attacked by this lovely bird watching man of color who was just there to see like a rare bird. So I, I don't know. I'm curious about this, but I think it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So this is why the second aspect, he says, of, of the second aspect of social habits of movements is so important. The Montgomery bus boycott became a society wide action because the sense of obligation that it held the black community together, that that was activated soon after her friends started spreading the word. Mm. So people who hardly knew Rosa Parks decided to participate because of social peer pressure. The power of weak ties made it difficult to avoid joining in. Right. So our weak tie acquaintances are often as influential, if not more, than our close ties. The power of weak ties help help explain how a protest can expand from a group of friends into a broad social movement. So I think that's where social media plays a very important part. You don't want to be the person posting about your fucking banana bread when everybody is posting about justice for Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Yeah, it comes off as totally tone deaf. And then you might be ostracized from the group. And it's like, why are you pretending this isn't happening? And we all see it and go fuck yourself. He also talks about Saddleback Church and how this worked in reverse. It worked start, it's starting with weak ties and then moving to strong ties. So Rick Warren was this Baptist pastor with a pregnant wife and less than $2,000 in the bank. And he wanted to start a new congregation amongst people who didn't already attend church, but he had no idea where it should be located. Mm. This is so he, we would really love his approach, Misty. He's like, I figured I would want to go somewhere. All my seminary friends didn't want to go. So he spent weeks in the library stacks looking at like census data and phone books and all of this stuff. And this was in, um, eighties, I think. So he would r- every few hours would run to a payphone, call home and make sure his wife didn't, hadn't gone into labor yet. <laughs> <laughs> so he found, um, this place in California, saddle, I think it was Saddleback, California. Um, and they moved there and his first prayer group attack attracted seven people took place in his living room. And 30 years later, it is one of the largest ministries in the world with more than 20,000 parishioners visiting its 120 acre campus and eight satellite campuses each week. Wow. Holy he, habit. He wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life, which we've heard about. Mm-hmm. Rick Warren and The Purpose Driven Life. Yeah. It sold 30 million copies. Whoa. And there are thousands of, uh-huh, there are thousands of other churches modeled on his methods. He, performed the invocation at Obama's inauguration. Mm. He's considered one of the most influential religious leaders on earth. Religious. Religious. religious leader. And at the core of his growth, his church's growth, 
is a fundamental belief in the power of social habits. So at first he went door to door. He spent um, three months going door to door, introducing himself and saying, why don't you go to church? And people are like, it's boring. The music is bad. The sermons don't apply to me. They need, I need childcare. I hate dressing up. The pews are uncomfortable. So he went so ahead he- and he put together a tight five, five minutes of stand up. He got bumping music. <laughs> he addressed each of those complaints. He said, wear shorts and Hawaiian shirts if you feel like it. He brought an electric guitar. His sermons were um, like focused a hip on practical religious topics. leader. He is. He's a religious leader. He's he. With titles like as how to handle discouragement, how to feel good about yourself, how to raise healthy families. Those were the titles of his. Right. Sermon. Not just like I'm a terrible person because I had a thought about seeing someone That's naked right. and I hate myself. <laughs> That's right. So his lessons were easy to understand, focused on real problems that could be applied as soon as parishioners left church. I can see how that really appeals. Appeals to a religious leader. (laughs) He assigned every Saddleback member to a small group that met every week. And the author says this was one of the most important decisions he ever made because it transformed church participation from a decision into a habit mm. that already drew on existing social urges and patterns. So, well, and it makes it the reward is like it makes it this really personal thing, not just I'm sitting in a massive room where a, a yeah, guy and in a pulpit is talking at me. Yeah. Yeah. So he was never sure he would have enough classrooms to accommodate everybody who showed up for Bible study. So he had them host inside their homes and he was worried that people might not like it, but they loved it. Oh right. My God, it's amazing. It gives you a, it gives you a group to socialize with and feel like yes! you belong and to have some exactly. He says ninety five percent of this church is what happens during the week inside those small groups. The congregation and small groups are like a one two punch. You have this big crowd to remind you what, that you're doing this in the first place, and small group of close friends to help you focus on how to be faithful. And together they're like glue. Well, and it gives you ownership over yes. what's happening. And so then it's that identity shift we're talking about. Yes. It's not I go to church. It's I am a Christian or whatever. Miss, you got it. So the author says without realizing it, Warren in some ways has replicated the structure that propelled the Montgomery bus boycott, though he's done it in reverse. Right. Oh, so he they created, started out with um, small groups that yes. went to a big movement and he had a big movement that went to small groups. That's exactly right. Also, every Saddleback member is asked to sign a maturity covenant card, which adheres to three habits, daily quiet time for reflection and prayer, tithing 10% of their income and membership in a small group and giving everyone new habits as a focus of the church. He says, once the, uh, the pastor says, once we do that, the responsibility for spiritual growth is no longer with me. It's with you. We've given you a recipe. We don't have to guide you because you're guiding yourself. Mm-hmm. These habits become a new self-identity. And at that point, we just need to support you and get out of the way. Plus, can I say that there's something so nice about going, oh, I know that if I hit these three criteria that you just outlined, that I am being good. a good member of XYZ group, right? So in this case, a yeah. church, but it's yeah. like, oh, I want to feel like I'm an amazing member of my dance team. So I promise I'm going to practice my turns for 10 minutes every day. I'm going to watch an instructional dance video and I'm going to buy a six pack of classes. And then you can just kind of go check, check, check. And there's something really, yes. really satisfying about that. Yes. That's what the author says. This is the third aspect of how social habits drive movements for an idea to grow beyond a community. It must become self-propelling. And the surest way to achieve that is to give people new habits that help them figure out where to go on their own. So just as Saddleback Church has given their uh, members these habits, the Montgomery boy- bus boycott helped birth a new set of social habits that quickly spread, right? It didn't just spread from um, in the South, but it made all the way to the halls of Congress. He says, when Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 64, which outlawed all forms of segregation as well as discrimination against minorities and women, he equated civil rights activists to the nation nation's founders, a comparison that a decade earlier would have been political suicide. Yeah. So movements don't emerge because suddenly everybody decides to face the same direction at once. They rely on social patterns that begin as the habits of friendship, growth through the habits of communities and are sustained by new habits that change participants sense of self. The last chapter in this section is all about um, addiction. And he talks about a woman who, gambled away millions and millions of dollars. Oh man. Um, and how it wasn't really her fault. It's fascinating. And at first you're like, that is absolutely her fault. And then when you learn about habits, you're kind of and, and the way he poses it. 
sorry. I'm just like terrified that one can do that and it's not really their fault. Like that is very scary. Here's the thing. He, um, I'm going to just mention this one thing, but it is fascinating because he, he poses these two people and he's like, the other, the other person he highlights is this man who had night, night terrors. Like he took, I think it was ambient. I don't know. Mm -hmm. He killed his wife because he was in a (gasps) full on dream that it was somebody attacking his wife. Oh my God. the, the, and then when they, ex, like when the doctors explained it and they're like, it's not his fault. Everybody's like, no, it's not his fault. Oh but my God. But then this woman, you're like, well, you gambled, you gambled your, your money away. It is your fault. But he says, perhaps a sleepwalking murderer can pa- plausibly argue he wasn't aware of his habit. Right. And so he doesn't bear responsibility for his crime. But almost all the other patterns that exist in most people's lives, how we eat and sleep and talk to our kids. And how we unthinkingly spend our time, attention, and money. Those are habits that we know how to exist. So he's saying, you know, the reason that we're comfortable as a society saying she was responsible is because she knew she had a problem and she should work on it. It it was just very interesting to immediately go, oh, yeah, I feel for this person and I don't feel for this person. So it's right, an interesting right. chapter in a Presenting two totally different cases. Yeah. In which one takes a person's life and the other one... It only affects her own family. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting which we have sympathy for and which we don't. It's really interesting. Anyway, that is the power of habit. Oh my God, Lisa. Amazing job. I am so fascinated by this. I mean, the science of habits is, I think that's why I just ran out and read Atomic Habits right after our episode as well, because it affects everything. It's, it is an upstream set of behaviors and beliefs that affects everything we do. So I have some questions for you. Please. Did this book need to be written? I think it absolutely did. I'm fascinated it was written eight years ago or published eight years ago in the context of what's happening today, which I think also made it super exciting for me to read today. Yes. And I think James Clear would say this book needed to be written. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you better believe it. Um, I got more out of it today, I think, than I would have a year ago. Yeah. Yes. Because it does feel when we're applying it to this enormous and historical moment in the civil rights, the modern day civil rights movement, it feels really personal and really applicable Mm -hmm. and resonates. Mm -hmm. So this sounds like it is a hundred percent practical. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, there's the part about belief, but he's like, researchers hate the answer. Belief is required. So yeah, it's definitely, definitely a practical path. So did you put anything into practice from this book? And if you did, how did it affect you? Well, I really started thinking about strong and weak ties in terms of this movement. And so like with my volunteering with Surge and... Which is showing up for racial justice. Lisa's been doing really intense... Uh, dedicated work. I, I feel like every time we're not recording or talking about the podcast, you're like, oh, I just have to do more phone banking for Surge or I just have to emcee this event. <laughs> it's been really wonderful to watch. I have been spending a lot of time. So I, I think what I've started to do is kind of lay this mindset onto that and how strong and weak ties can work with that. Also in this time of Corona, where I can't be physically where I'm social distancing and staying at home, yeah. you know, like how technology makes that much easier. Yeah. And it also makes me want to post about wear a mask, wear a mask. Everyone should be wearing masks in case I'm one of your weak ties or I'm one of your strong ties, wear a fucking yeah. mask. Uh, yeah. So what did, what, was there anything that you hated about this book? And was there anything that you particularly loved about this book? No, I, nothing that I hated. Cause you know, I'm a data geek. So this was exciting. Um, well, you know, I'm a sociologist by education. My undergrad is a uh, degree is sociology. So there's so much sociology in this book and that always excites me. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I feel like I thought the author did such a great job of telling story, which also makes it super exciting and easy to get into. Yes. It's easy to talk about a habit loop when I'm learning about Eugene Polly, who changed the way that we view habits and our understanding of them. Like that is fascinating to me. Yeah. I always love context like that. So last question before I ask about homework, who is this book perfect for and who is it terrible for? This book is perfect for anybody who is leading an organization, any kind of organization who is interested in leading or being a leader or who's interested in kind of changing personal habits 
or maybe habits in your family. Mm, that's um, interesting. I don't think this is good for anybody who just wants, like, I think atomic habits is better for somebody who's like, I want to make it so that I run every day. Like, this is not going to help you. But if you're really curious to know how in a broader context habits work, I think this is better. Whereas opposed to like atomic habits is definitely for, I want to make sure I floss every day. How do I do that? Right, right. So do you have any homework for me? I do. I really want to explore this idea of strong and weak ties. So I guess my question to you, now that you know, the cat's out of the bag, but I would love for you to think about what, if anything, is driving you to take action in this current Black Lives Matter movement for Black Lives, defund the police. Like, If you can think about what is causing you to take action, because I think we all watch that video of George Floyd and we're horrified, but what is it about right now that's making you feel like I want to post things I want to know more about organizations, you know, like, as I've heard you say, like, what, what is that that's causing it? Because my guess is if you can sit still with it for a while, it it might have to do with some strong and weak ties. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I'll ruminate on that. And I'll report back on the next mini so the next weekly beef. Lisa, this is an amazing episode. Thank you so much. What incredible content and and thank you to the author for doing all of this research and giving us this gift. Thank you. And with that, everybody, <laughs> life, life is, is abundant. abundant. Goodbye. Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know you can also find us on the social medias. Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast. Twitter at G-H-Y podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.